Hello, and welcome to the Premonition Podcast, the podcast with an AI on the future. My name is Andrew Weaver, and this is already the fifth edition of our fledgling series of podcasts looking at the impact of big data and machine learning AI on various sectors. And we've stuck to the traditional, really, the ones that we know pretty well, which are in previous podcasts, which include legal services. We had a chat with Richard Tromans on legal AI and automation. We've also had a fascinating couple of podcasts with leading names in the insurtech and insurance market on how big data is already and certainly will be transforming the analysis of risk and the way that underwriters and claims managers instruct their lawyers and use data and all that kind of lovely stuff. So if you haven't heard them before, please do go back and have a listen to our previous podcast. But today we are veering slightly off-piste, slightly off what you might expect, because premonition very much is at the forefront of what I describe as Moneyball for law. And those of you familiar with Moneyball will know its origins are in the Oakland Athletics baseball team and the use of data to create or to have remarkable insight, which has been adopted throughout sport. But the Moneyball concept, the concept of using data, machine learning, whatever you want to call it, but to create really unique and distinctive insight and often that insight is disrupting completely a very well-established order. Well, there couldn't be a better example or story of it than the one we're about to hear. Uh, our guest today is a chap called Jeff Cedar, based over in Pennsylvania. His company, EQB, are at the forefront of the use of data in the selection of horses at auction that hopefully therefore go on to have great success. Challenging the concept, uh, the well-established concept over many hundreds of years, that it was all about pedigree. As Jeff says, it's not how fast the horse goes, it's how the horse goes fast. And on that note, and without further ado, I bring you Jeff Cedar. So Jeff, welcome to the Premonition Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, well, it's great to, great to speak to you on a number of levels. I was just mentioning to Jeff before we recorded that my family actually have a background in horse racing. So on a very personal level, Jeff, uh, fascinated to see what you're doing or what you've achieved with this. And obviously, the moneyball angle from a premonition basis and from a big data basis is really fascinating, particularly uh, in a world where you wouldn't think that data would have made the impact that it has. So just to, to reel us back a bit, Jeff, take us back to the beginning. Um, your love affair with horses began with a date, I understand. Yeah, I was in uh, law school <laughs> and uh, I went on a date. She took me to a rental stable and we went out on horses and I kind of fell in love with the horses instead of her <laughs> and uh, started taking lessons. I said it'd be a lot more fun if I didn't have to worry about falling off. And then I, uh, I uh, started taking lots of lessons and then I bought a horse and then I, you know, and rented a farm and away we went. And then, uh, for, uh, I don't know, you know, if you know, but enough about American politics, but when Richard Nixon was in there and he got thrown out for Watergate, one of the things, the thing that precipitated it was after Watergate was they hired a special, uh, process, special investigator, prosecutor, which who was a lawyer named Andrew Cox from Harvard. And when I was at Harvard Law School, he was my advisor right after that. So I had to go to him and tell him what my thesis was. I was in a law and business program and I hadn't done anything and it was near the end of the year. So I had to go in there and talk to him about my progress, which was non-existent. So uh, 
went in there and I thought he's going to throw me out. It's going to be a disaster. And I, he asked me, well, where are we? And I said, well, he says, well, what are you interested in? And I said, I looked down at the floor and I said, horses. And I thought that would be it. And he turned around and he got this huge book. Uh, he, his office was in the stacks, which was like four levels beneath the earth in a, in a dark section of the library where they store all the books and stuff. He turns around and he goes, pulls this huge book out from behind him and he drops it on the desk and the dust all goes up. And he says, this is the statute that covers horse racing in the state of Massachusetts. I don't think anybody at Harvard has ever looked at it. Why don't you do that? So I went crazy doing that. And I found out, uh, you know, the, the, I went through the finances of the racetrack, which was all completely sleazy and bogus. And, and I just had a field day with it. And I ended up getting an A. And then I thought I would really like to do something with horses. But I couldn't see anywhere where, I mean, I didn't. I didn't see, I had no background in it. I had no connections. And, uh, although I was starting to be a good rider, I, I didn't know anybody really. So I thought, what the hell can I do? And, I, and I, the only place I saw where I could maybe make some kind of money I wanted to make was in horse racing. So I looked at that and I thought, uh, wow, you know, the more I looked at it and from this research I'd done in the racetrack, it was 300 years back in what they were doing. And it was 1976. And the Olympics, the East Germans just burst onto the scene in the Olympics. And they were winning all these medals, this little country. Used, before that, it was all a fight between the Russians and the Americans for gold, who had the most gold medals. And now all of a sudden, this little country. And everybody was horrified. And they said, how are they doing it? And they thought they were mad scientists taking kids out of uh, kindergartens. It turned out a lot of it was steroids. <laughs> but nobody knew that. Anyway, we, I was a young lawyer, and I was I was fortunate enough to be asked to be part of a group that was starting to do something in the United States about it in sports medicine research for the United States Olympic Committee. So that was my first gig. And uh, I, uh, so I got, I started working very heavily with the people who were experts in biomechanics and all the different things that related to exercise physiology and, and sport. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that racing was, was really in the dark ages. So I, ha I said, look, I have this education in science, I was pre-med also at Harvard. I have education in science and statistics and business. And I'm here I am in the middle of this huge explosion of trying to be more scientific about sports. And uh, I could do this with horses, I thought. So, and then fast forward after 20 years of starving and doing nothing, it finally, it turned out, it's turned into a juggernaut. You know, it's become great with 39 grade one winners we bought in the last five or six years, and four Eclipse Wards and, you know, world champions, but we bought for not a lot of money and all, and just an incredible track record. And last year we bought young yearlings for some guy, he gave us 900,000 and we turned it into four and a half million selling them off as, as uh, two-year-olds. In industry and the impact of us, Although we do work for the six of the top 10 stables in the United States, most people don't know who we are or wouldn't use us, you know, or there's cheap imitations of what we did. What we've taken took 35 years and millions of dollars. And there's there people out there kind of winging it. So, but a lot of people can't tell the difference between us and them, except that our track record. So anyway, and the, the crowning piece of the program was uh, American Pharaoh. After 37 years, he won the triple crown. And uh, uh, so although I did... The guy who owns him, uh, kind of somehow I got in a fight with him right before he won the Triple Crown. I was banned from his, his box at the racetrack during oh, wow. the event. Wow. So that kind of put a damper on the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, the, we, we had bought him the, the dam for that. 
as an incredible physical specimen. And she only ran a couple of races and then he made her a broodmare, but she was something really special. And the, then the sire uh, uh, was sort of part of a breeding program and he was going to sell it. And we did all the, the, the testing that we do and he didn't sell it. And so we felt we were a real part. And then when America Ferrer was young, he was put in a yearling auction and we were supposed to evaluate him again. And once again, we said, you know, the, the, the New York Times, the day before the, uh, the Belmont Stakes, that Friday, before he won the Triple Crown, the quote of the day, they have a quote of the day every day in the New York Times. And that day it was me. And the quote was, uh, sell your house, don't sell this horse, which was from that yearling auction. <laughs> and he didn't. And the rest was history. Well, I, so I, I, that was I, I, nice. And, and just, just a quickie on that. I mean, most, a lot of people listening to this will be from the States, will know what the Triple Crown is. But the Triple Crown essentially is, are, are the three premier race uh, horse races in, in the States, aren't they? The Kentucky Derby, Belmont States, yes. and the Preakness Stakes? And the Belmont Stakes, the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes. The Preakness Stakes. And they're different distances and different surfaces, so it's extremely hard to do it. And what happens these days is, uh, what, they were, what happens these days is uh, fresh horses will meet you in each race that didn't go in the other races. You're not required to yeah. go in all three. And they're bunched fairly close together. So even if you're a super horse, you're going to be tired. And you're going to meet the best there is in the world going for million-dollar purses in each of these races. And they're fresh and you're not. Mm -hmm. So it's really quite an extraordinary achievement these mm -hmm. days. And it didn't happen for 37 years. Secretariat, people may know that name, was one of the, the premier uh, triple crown winners, one of the last ones before the it stopped, the whole thing stopped. Uh and of course, they're grade one races. They're three-year-olds too. But let me so. let me just take you back very briefly, if you if you wouldn't mind, Jeff, without giving away trade secrets clearly here. But but you you told the owner to to sell his house ahead of selling this horse. What 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 was it about that horse that convinced you? What did you spotted within? Right, well, before I do that, let me just tell you one of the things I learned from my experience with the Olympic Sports Medicine Committee, working with Olympic American Olympic teams, where we by the way we made a big difference with the number of teams, was that. Uh, the medical data that existed, the data that existed to understand medical, engineering, physiological, to understand uh, these things was on normal and on sick or injured. They didn't know about elite athletes. And it turned out that the elite athletes, the data we needed was as different from normal as from uh, as the injured and the sick was from normal. And so we, we didn't know. They really didn't know. And when I went, I created the first accurate heart rate meter that was the size of a pack of cigarettes that you could carry. And while I was doing it, I went to the world's leading uh, racehorse cardiologist, and they told me that the heart rate would be about 120 beats a minute going up the racetrack because their heart's so big and this and that and the other. And then the meter kept telling me it was like 220, 220. And I, and I thought, what's wrong with this? Well, finally, I decided there's nothing wrong with my they don't know what they're talking about. And that happened again and again and again. And I realized I had to get the data. Not only that, but the, the, the equipment to get the data didn't exist. I had to get designed and get manufactured for me specifically, back, this was back 20-something years ago, a chip. Personal computers didn't exist. I had to have the chip manufactured so I could get that accurate heart rate. Human meters weren't accurate for a lot of reasons. And then I, so I did that again and again when I... Uh, I saw that the guy named Steele in Australia was doing heart, was doing the measuring uh, the size of the heart, trying to do it from an EKG. But the little machine that he would measure the distance between the peaks on the EKG on the little tape that came out of the cardio machine. But the tapes, they were doing it in barns. And the, and the uh, I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> we're doing it in barns and the, uh, 
the voltage would vary. And so the little motor running the tape would go faster or slower. And then they were measuring the distance. It was crap data, you know, yeah. and he still had some relationships. But I said, this is ridiculous. I need to do it. I need to. And I found out you could take ultrasound and you could measure the pieces of the heart, mm -hmm. but you couldn't do it in a stall. And this was, a, this, this was a, this was just just to tell everybody this was a homemade device, wasn't it? This is something yeah. you, you so created. We went twenty something years ago or more. Yeah. So we went to uh, <laughs> we went to uh, uh, we bought a, a, a an Apple two C the first thing, and then we went to military contractors outside of Washington D.C. and we got military hardware crap, and then we we programmed in machine language. If just anybody in Nobody now. It's like fifteen languages later. Mm -hmm. We programmed in machine language so it'd be fast enough because you have like ten million things a second in ultrasound, and we built a machine that could go into the stall and you could wheel it in. And we and we started doing racehorses, and we found out that the transducers were wrong. So we had transducers in different uh, frequencies manufactured for us. By the way, that machine is now commercially available. We should have patented the goddamn thing. And uh, so we got, to, and then we got so we could do it reproducibly, and uh, and to see what we could do. And and I'll, I'll get back to. I'm going to get back to the analytics and the big data and everything. But to fast, I'll get back to that. To fast forward about American Pharaoh. American Pharaoh was like fit everything we knew after 35 years of doing that stuff. Millions of dollars, uh, 20,000 horses, follow every split of every race, and do all these workups on them and everything. And now we're into DNA. Yeah. But anyway, the uh, he and the main, the, the most outstanding thing about it. Well, oh, the other thing we found out was that the great athletes, they were different and they didn't have holes in them. So in the great racehorses, you didn't have to have the very best gait or the biggest heart or the you know the the the, the most wonderful something. And a lot of people thought they did. They would fall in love with one thing they found, and then they would find a horse or a person, an athlete that had that one thing, and then it didn't work out, and they didn't know why. That doesn't work. You don't need the best everything. You just need a good everything. And that makes you very rare. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you had 20 links uh, holding the Queen Mary and they were titanium and then you had one that made out of paper mache, it will break and the, the ship will float away. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing with these athletes. And uh, so uh, what we're really looking for when we find all these grade one winners when they're yearlings is where there's no hole. And they were not, not only was American Pharaoh had no hole, that wasn't the greatest in everything, but some of the variables he had were just off the chart. One of them was his heart. In fact, I know one of the guys that used to work for us that left and competes with us turned him down because he thought his heart was too big. But we were pretty sure that wasn't the case because everything else fit. Everything fit. And yes, it was extraordinary, but that's what we're looking for, extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So why would we get rid of the anomalous? When mm -hmm. we see a big anomaly, why would we throw it out? If It's like with a symphony. that uh, You can jumble notes together, you know, an infinite number of ways, and you just get noise. Mm -hmm. But there's also a whole lot of ways you can do it that are symphonies, and they're different. But it all fits together, and that's what he was. And he had this huge, thick, enormous heart pumping a lot of blood and it, and the quality of the muscle and this and that the whole thing was just extraordinary and and on top of that we couldn't find anything else no matter what we traditional non-traditional we couldn't find a hole in this horse yeah, okay. we said if, if this horse can't unless something happens to him he's really he's going to be memorable and he was yeah amazing um, story amazing story. But I, I just want to take you move you on to the the, the, the challenge that you put into the or given the traditional uh, and the word traditional is something that 
chimes with us in legal services because we are, you know, we are struggling under the weight of tradition and, and peer review and all that nonsense. And actually, data shines a light on lawyer performance that it's never done before. So you're, ch you're, you're challenging or have challenged the traditional view that bloodlines and pedigree are what matters. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what drives the value. That's what drives the price. That's what gets sexy headlines. But actually, what I found astonishing when I was reading some of the background research on, on you guys was the stats on actually how many of those horses win is incredibly low. I mean, yeah. what, is it, what is it, one or two percent are going to win a... Yeah, I, that's what I realized. I realized 99.9% .9 of the people in horse racing were losing money. And they would show me the very best pedigrees from the very best veterinarians, the very best owners, the very best handlers, all the smartest, most experienced people. And if they had 10% major horses, they thought that was fantastic. And I was coming out of the Olympics where if we had 90% failure rate, we would think we were pretty awful, right? Yeah, and I thought, no, this is, this is, they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, well, that's not true. The, the, what they have is good, but it's not enough. So I said, this is, I can make a living here. I can, I can make a contribution here. So, uh, but if the first 20 years were pretty rough, and the reason was not only did we not have the data, but we didn't have the equipment. We ended up making the equipment to get the data. Yeah. And along the way, we invented some stuff. We invented a bone scanner, non-invasive ultrasound bone scanner, and we spun it off to Johnson & Johnson because they could diagnose osteoporosis with it, and it won the new medical device of the year in Europe in 1986. And we still get royalties. We, we, you know, we, that was from a little farmhouse in a cornfield in Pennsylvania with a bunch of nuts from Harvard, uh, who who were not doing what their dads told them to do because they liked horses. So uh, anyway, but we accumulated data and we had failure after failure. And then I met this lady named Pat Patrice Miller, who was a she was a like she was thrown out of a couple of prep schools and. Uh, and a couple of the best colleges in the United States. She, she was one of the first women jockeys in the United States, the second one, I think. She lied about her age and rode a 15 at, an old, at a country racetrack. She had done it all, and she got interested in what we were doing and joined us. And she she's a genius at what she does. Now she's our partner in it all. She, and she had worked for some of the top, she ended up, at that point, had worked for some of the top trainers in the United States, like Rob Whiteley, Hall of Famers. So she brought the traditional expertise and the curiosity to improve it. And that was our turning point. Because then we, before that, we were doing technical things well and basic things badly. And, and she made the difference. And the comp, there was a lot of conflict, but the competition, uh, I remember one time when she was telling me, I was looking at how they were wrapping the leg, and she said, well, that's how Frank Whiteley does it. And I said, well, did Frank Whiteley wear a hat? And she was going to kill me. <laughs> and I was saying, I want to make my own tr traditions. But anyway, I, that was wrong. I needed to pay attention to what Frank Whiteley did and build on it. Yeah, and when we started yeah. doing that, man, the whole thing started to open. Plus, plus, by then, I had 20 years of data. We had spent millions of dollars. I had worked other jobs. I had been successful in major businesses that I didn't give a shit about because all I wanted was the money to do my horse research. And uh, so that's where the money came from. And, uh, and I also brought technology from my businesses. When I, the slow motion photography, I bought that from textiles where you had to have, you had to have a machine that could watch the loom with the needles all going like mad and it could immediately slow it down and look at it and figure out what to fix. I took that over and I did it on the horses breezing on the racetrack. And I found out, I, and I'm, I found out that the, again, like I did in the Olympics, that the great horses ran differently than the average horse. And it, you could, and it was, it, if you had a good, you couldn't do it with a regular camera. In those days, 
these were cameras. We didn't have video. You did, it was like $200,000 in shitty video. These were special cameras with, again, military, that went 500 pictures a second with a film without breaking it. And then I had special projectors onto special computer platforms. It was incredible. But we found out there were major things that we could identify that were different in the way these really good horses run. So we added that to our stuff. And we, so we do gait analysis now. And people say, well, you don't need a, a camera that goes that fast. Well, then they don't know what to look for because they haven't got the data. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the heart. I see guys out there and they're looking at the ejection fraction of the heart. And I was saying, I know from, because I got mountains of data. That's meaning, well, it has to be normal in a range, but other than that, it's not going to tell you much. Mm -hmm. people, there's all kinds of crap being sold out there, but they don't. They have 100 ponies in a lab or they have 170 horses out of one guy's barn or something ridiculous. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll have we have 50,000 horses over 15 years, you know, worked up and followed. And there, and, and uh, uh, we published a lot of it. We published mountains of data uh, because nobody would pay any attention to us and they didn't believe it. And they couldn't tell the difference between what we were doing and all the bullshitters. So I said, so we published it. And at the time, I thought, well, I'm giving it away, but it's the only way to legitimize it. And I'll be the first one, so I'll get my share of the market. As it turned out, although it was read by, you know, scholars, veterinary scholars, I got it into the most prestigious scientific journals where it had to be refereed by those guys who were completely prejudiced against me because I didn't have a veterinarian's degree. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they realized, I mean, I had to jump through so many hoops, but it was real. We published all this data, and that's a fraction of what we have. But people still don't, they don't read it, they don't use it, they don't understand. Mm -hmm. that, that the, in the heart stuff, for example, uh, it turned out we were measuring the hearts, and it wasn't proving any, we couldn't get anything. It really wasn't very good. Until we got enough data, until we had 12,000 horses over three or four years, and every split of every race through the end of the three-year-old year kind of thing. And then... Uh, at that point, we realized that if we separated the data from when we took the reading, so we only compared horses that were the same age, very tightly, within a month, chronological age, and the same sex, and the same height, and the same weight, and, and, we, and, and it, we had to have a database big enough, so if it was a 900-pound, 13-month-old filly that was 15 hands, that we had enough horses that there were graded stakes horses in there that weren't just on drugs or by accident in one race or something, right? Mm -hmm. So you needed, in order to have like hundreds of horses to compare to everything you looked at, at you had to have a database of like 20,000. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so when we got there and we did that statistically on the computers, and in the, still we didn't have personal computers. In those days, I would run up to the New York to a hospital in New York uh, that had a huge IBM 360, and we would. I knew a doctor there, and he would let me put these huge discs on at midnight till 7 a.m. because they had room in the computer then, and uh, uh, all this stuff. <laughs> and we found, oh my God, look at this! It's it's now it's obvious what we're looking for. So when people go out and wing it, or the other thing is, it's not easy to we we. When we first started measuring hearts, for example, we again, we went to the experts and they showed us how you do it and the protocol for the equine cardiology. And it didn't work. It wasn't reproducible. You couldn't go into a stall and do that with a yearling running around mm -hmm. and get the same result twice. So we said, well, what's wrong with this picture? So we worked and worked and we ended up with a different protocol. We went around the other side of the horse. We changed the, the frequency of the, the transducer and we, we measured at a different angle, a different part. And we, got, and we got so it was reproducible. You could do it 
tomorrow, next week, next month, whatever, and you were going to, but you couldn't do it with another technician, really. You needed a really trained, it was not easy. Mm-hmm. It was like, you could give people the, the data and the instrument, you could give them the violin and the instruction manual, but they weren't going to play a symphony. They needed the experience. Anyway, we got so we could do it reproducibly. Then we proved that with a huge study. And then, then we went after it. And then the data just was, it became obvious when we went. Some of these horses are not going to make it. The other day I had to laugh. I still, this is, this is Moneyball and it's really pure. One of, it's analytics, it's big data, it's biometrics. I worked, I didn't do it by myself. I went and found the, the leading people in each of the different fields in, the, in our country. You know, and I worked with them to design our studies and interpret our studies so, I, you know, so that they would be sound. But every time when I started, they all thought they knew the answers, and it turned out they didn't. You know, it was really different. I don't know. I get so excited to go on and on. <laughs> well, it's brilliant. Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. So one of the horses <laughs> in sale sold for $2.4 million. It was an unraised two-year-old in Breezing. And it was a big, good-looking, had a good pedigree, and it was a beautiful gait, and it was fast and everything else. And it passed the vet and x-rays and everything, and it had a heart about that was in the bottom quartile, maybe the bottom 10% of the breed and a small spleen. And I thought, forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it. It goes for 2.4 million because they're two, they're two geniuses. They don't need this new shit right now. They're going to spend 300 bucks to look at the heart. So, and then, then it, first race was a sprint. It didn't do so hot. So they were going running it. Second race was running long at a major racetrack. And I was on the computer looking at it and it was, it was going off at one to five. It's such a heavy favorite. I said, he's going to get to the head of the stretch and he's going to just die, right? Because he can't, it's never, this horse is not going over a mile in good company. Forget it. So I pile on every other horse in the race, right? And sure enough, he gets to the head of the stretch and gives it up. It was the second race. And I thought, you know, there it is. I mean, that, people may not understand all the rest of it, but they understand that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. you know, they'll get, you think they get it, but yeah. I, t- well, I, t- I tell you what I was also thinking when I was looking well, at this. People who paid the 2.4 million are some of the most famous, accomplished people in horse racing. I won't name them to yeah. embarrass them. Yeah. But listen, one of the things I was thinking, Jeff, was, was alongside this, you know, the, the, the data that you've got that's unchallengeable. All these imitators can do what they want to do, but they haven't got that. But they also haven't got you, and, and they haven't got that instinct of, you know, for example, the, the, the knocking knees and the knocking feet analysis that, you know, this horse may look good now, but what's it going to look like after 20 races? Uh, and that combination- 20, two or three, the guys are knocking their feet. Yeah, that's it. We, we get this in the gate. So when we breeze them, we'll see when we go to these cells, some of them bang their front hoof into their back hoofs and they do it every stride. And then, and then they don't want to go in the starting gate or they don't like to train, you know, they, and their feet are hot. They don't, but they don't know why, you yeah, know, yeah. And, and, and there's like 10 things like that. Some of them, when they throw their leg out, their foreleg out at the end of the leg, it's a five pound hoof on the end of a rope. Right. And at the end of every time they throw that leg out, they snap their ankle. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, they don't make racing or they have a short career because they correct their sesamoids. And, 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 you know, I wouldn't have bought that horse. Because I bothered to sit there with this, with a camera, you know, that cost 20 grand. Be, when I sit there, they go by, and then I have a screen in front of me. Until the next horse goes by, I see the horse going by in slow motion. And I see them banging their hoofs together, and I see them snapping their ankles. I see them going so far back at the knee that the whole leg is in the shape of a banana. So you have a thousand pound horse going 40 miles an hour and he goes so far back at the knee, it'd be like if you're, you're, you're standing up straight forward and your whole leg bends 
bends like a banana, right? With eight tons of force on it. And I know that because I had force plates and racetracks that I ran horses. I know how much force there is and the angles of it. I, you know, I, I, if I started telling you all the things, I measured the, the weight of the manure that was coming out of horses on their way to the paddock. You know, we did, we cut off legs of every horse that broke down at some of the racetracks and tested them in, in, uh, in uh, uh, engineering machinery to find out. I mean, it's the, 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 we looked, you know, you, there's a lot of, we looked at so many things and just piled up the data. Mm-hmm. And nine out of 10 were useless. They were interesting. One of them became, you know, the, the, the bone scanner was, we sold it to Johnson & Johnson, I told you about. A lot of it was interesting, but it didn't do anything. But that 10th that out of 10, you know, would be gold. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff that I don't talk about is really, really stupidly simple. But it's powerful. Mm-hmm. And lately, we're doing the DNA. There's guys out there with the DNA. The big deal is they call it the speed gene. And the main thing they have is a myostatin inhibitor marketer. And the myostatin inhibitor is related to a, a precocious muscle development. And there's a disease associated with it that makes a whippet look like a, a bulldog and a baby look like a weightlifter. And so the idea was that then when they, were, they would be precocious and they would put on muscle faster and be stronger earlier and win earlier races and blah, blah, blah. And they found a relation between that and the big, really good racehorses. And I thought, well, I don't know if that's so valuable because, first of all, I can look at a yearling or I can look at a tear and I can tell you whether it's muscled up without having to get DNA out of it. And, you know, they are different. And, uh, but, and secondly, I want a three and a four year old anyway, so I have time to train it. It doesn't have to be muscled up as a two year old to be a valuable racehorse. And thirdly, the idea of a speed gene is like the idea of a health gene. It, it, it would be like health is very complex. It's made of many, many things. The performance of a racehorse is extremely complex phenomena. It's not anchored to one thing, let alone precocious muscle development. So instead of looking for a health gene, they look for like, a disease gene, one related to a specific disease. So what I look for is markers related to the specific things that I know relate to the performance of the horse. That I, over all my data, I picked out all, and I've got all these horses to do. So I started going back and I found all these horses and I said, okay, I'm, I know these horses have these biometric traits and I want to see if I can find markers for it. Mm-hmm. And so I found several markers. They have nothing to do with what's being, what the big company in horse resource DNA is doing. Nothing to do with that. And I'm not advertising and I'm not selling it right now. But I, it's completely different. But it's very, very specific thing. And it's, it's pretty good. Well, it's fascinating. We are again, it's, but it's, it's, what is it based on? Data. You have to be willing to spend the time and the money to go out and get to. You have to be imaginative. Yep. You have to get the right people. So you're asking the right questions, looking for the right kinds of data. And then you have to realize that probably you're going to find something you had no idea was important. Well, it's, it's, in, in, you in, have in, to be open. In a strange way, it's not rocket science, is it? Is it that if you collect that amount of data, you can have a massive impact on, on, a, on an industry? So tell me this. You mentioned um, in your uh, discussions with the vet industry that the prejudices against you, prejudices against you, I should say. How has it been more generally in the, in the horse racing environment? What, what, do they think of, uh, what do they think of what you've done and how you've changed the way that you spot well, okay. now they, the sale companies in the United States now all provide these these videos of the breezes, although they don't give you a video that's good enough quality to do what I do. And Jeff, just just to stop you a second, so bree- breezing is is what you, when you're going to spot a horse. They work out the horse at a racing speed with a jockey on its back in front of the crowd for the a few days before the 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 auction, so you okay. can look at it. And they provide a, a regular video of that, so you can look at it and slow it down. But the video is such that if you really try to slow it down. 
it doesn't take enough pictures per second. So when you stop it, the legs are all fuzzy. So the things you want to look at, you can't. But you can only do kind of like major pattern recognition from speed of the horse. But uh, and you can see it. So, of course, what do they do? They all go by how fast the horse went. And a lot of horses go fast in ways that are dangerous or that are use too much energy. So they will work out at a phenomenally fast eighth of a mile and everybody thinks they're great. But the way they did it makes it pretty sure they can't go a mile. So I wouldn't want them. But they sell for the most money because they they went the fastest workout time. Yeah, yeah. It's a brilliant story. Jeff, I'm going to wrap it up there. There's, there's a lovely saying. I'm not actually sure if it was from you or your, or your colleague, Patrice, but it's not how fast the horse goes, it's how the horse goes fast. Is that, is that yours yes. or Patrice? Yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant saying. Yeah, that's me. It's, we yeah. don't look at how fast they go. We look at how they go fast. Well, on that fantastic that's note. That's it, yeah. On that fantastic note. We're going to put some links uh, at the bottom of this podcast uh, for people who actually want to see uh, or find out more about the, the Jeff Cedar EQB story. But, Jeff, thank you for joining me, and thank you so much for all the amazing information and background about your your the disruption you're bringing to horse racing well thank you and i hope i get to be more disruptive <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck to you thanks thanks again okay. jeff